1: To value listeners, this week we have Susan Denser, the president and chief executive officer of, of America's Physician Groups, the organization of more than 335 physician practices that provide patient centered, coordinated, and integrated care for patients while being accountable for cost and quality. APG members provide care to nearly 90 million patients nationwide. And Susan is one of the most respected health policy thought leaders. In the country, she's a frequent speaker and commentator on television and radio. She's been on PBS and NPR. She's been an author of commentaries and analyses and print publications such as Modern Healthcare, New England Journal of Medicine, the Annals of Internal Medicine. She's also the editor and lead author of the book Healthcare Without Walls: A Roadmap to Reinventing U.S. Healthcare. Dan, I I could just go on and on. Susan is wow, she's a very accomplished leader in the value movement. And we're so grateful to have her, you know, doing what she does on behalf of our industry and and helping us transform it.
0: Definitely, Eric. And our listeners are lucky to have her on our show today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Just to add to some of the things that you mentioned, she was the Senior Policy Fellow for the Robert J. Margola Center for Health Policy at Duke University. She's also been an Editor-in-Chief of the Policy Journal Health Affairs. We had a great conversation today. If you're interested in learning more about or understanding about primary care as a backbone of the the transformation movement, learning more about the ACO reach model and and capitation. We had some fantastic policy conversation today, and you know what really impressed me is she's just practical and insightful commentary that's just uh, that just makes a lot of sense when you hear it. So again, happy to have Susan on the show today.
1: Well, I am too, Daniel. And before I hand it off to Susan, I just wanted to remind you all, Race to Value listeners, we appreciate your support please go to Apple Podcast. We would love a five-star rating and a review. Go to our website, subscribe to our newsletter, and we appreciate all of you for taking the time to really understand and lead in this race to value. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hear from Susan Denser, president and CEO of APG, as she joins us this week on the podcast. Susan, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you on this week
2: it's wonderful to be with you thanks so much for having me
1: well susan let's start our conversation today by talking about how our nation's healthcare system is accelerating its movement to value and how apg is playing a lead role in this seismic shift after years of experimenting controlling and incentives value-based payment models those tied to patient outcomes and spending targets seem to be gaining traction According to the Healthcare Payment Learning Action Network, annual measurement of participation of APMs, slightly more than 60% of healthcare payments in 2020 included some form of quality and value component. And that's up from 53% in 2017 and 11% in 2012. Similarly, 49% of practices. According to the American Academy of Family Physicians in their 2022 value-based care survey, said that they're participating in some form of value-based payment, and 18% are developing the capabilities to do so. But despite all this traction, it seems like things are really moving at a glacial pace right now in value. Just a few weeks ago, MGMA Released a highly representative recent survey that showed that only a small fraction of total revenue of primary and specialty practices are tied to value-based contracts. And that's consistent with most of the research done by the Healthcare Payment Learning Action Network, which their data shows that $1 out of every $3 paid by payers is covered under advanced APMs. And after more than a decade of the Innovation Center being formed and trying to accelerate the deployment of value-based payment, in two decades of employers asking their TPAs to implement real risk contracts with providers, we're far from critical mass. So I just wanted to ask you. You know, can you provide your perspective on the pace of the value movement and what is APG doing to support innovative healthcare providers that are successfully delivering improved patient care at lower cost through these budget-based prospective payment models?
2: Obviously, very important questions. And I think, Eric, you've very accurately summed up the state that we're in, which is really to, to boil it down. Have we made a lot of progress in the move to value? over the last decade plus? Yes. Have we gotten anywhere near as far as we need to? No, it's really that simple. I think that uh, by and large, what we're seeing is the entrenchment of the payment modality that we have had in place primarily in US healthcare for decades, which is volume-based care, fee-for-service care, Works so well to provide a strong financial basis for so much of U.S. healthcare that it is extremely difficult to erect any very different edifice and really change the incentive structure in U.S. healthcare when so much has been built up around it. It really has been, if you try to cast this as a positive, you would say the basis of fee-for-service as the as the structural basis of the US healthcare system has been phenomenally explosively effective in creating a huge edifice of healthcare that is primarily organized around first of all treating people when they're sick not so much preventing that sickness because we never managed to construct a way that prevention really paid for itself in any meaningful way. And by paid for itself, I mean simply had some financial incentives attached to it, right? We we kind of did the opposite. We built a system that only incentivizes doing things for people who are sick. And it just turns out that that was an extremely effective way to build a large system. And Again, to take the positive aspects of this, there are so many strengths in the US healthcare system that did come about through this edifice of fee-for-service payment that we built. It's just that what we learned was two things. A, it's not enough. We really need to do much, much more to preserve the health of individuals and delay, if not prevent illness. That's much better for individuals. It's much better for society even if it costs money, which it does, as we know, prevention does cost money, we need to not only do that, we need to really change the incentive structure, at least in many respects, so that people are rewarded and systems are rewarded for keeping people healthier, maintaining quality of care when it is needed, when interventions around sick care are needed, and producing real value for the dollars expended as opposed to the volume. It's just that simple. So how do you integrate all of that into a system that has been built up in this massive structure dependent on fee-for-service payment and rewarded by fee-for-service payment? It turns out it's very, very difficult, much, much more difficult, I think, that anybody has ever imagined. And in particular, when you try to do All of this in a way that's somewhat politically palatable, which is to say, frankly, the set of initiatives, particularly those that came out of the Affordable Care Act, where you handed a bunch of opportunities off to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in the form of the the Medicare Shared Savings Program ACOs. You handed a bunch off to a new entity, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. You did a lot of these interventions on a voluntary basis, so a coalition of the willing that was willing to say goodbye to the old incentive structure, notwithstanding its power, and move into new models that it turns out are very, very difficult to glom on top of the current system. You know, if you try to do it all that way, it turns out it's really hard. So that's where we are as a country. And when we have attempted, when when there were a few of the mandatory models put in place, you got an extraordinary backlash. And that kind of resistance of the system, I think, continues to this day. And it's not just on the side of those who want to stay in a fee-for-service world. There's also opposition now cropping up to these changes because people don't really understand them and they don't understand the implications of them. And they worry about who's behind them and who, you know, God forbid, might be profiting off of a different system where you save money for the government, you get to share in the savings. And isn't that potentially quite dangerous? And what if you turn the incentives such that people are rewarded for not always giving out unlimited amounts of care and actually have to make judgments about budgeting dollars effectively and therefore might withhold care from people that maybe somebody else would give them under different circumstances? There's resistance on that side of the equation too. So I think As we at APG look at it, we uh, represent physician groups that have been at this business for a very long time, many of them, others that are newer to this field. But I think everybody certainly affiliated with our organization has the sense that this is a difficult, necessary, extremely important slog that the whole system has to undergo and they've learned a lot from doing it themselves and really want to share and help other organizations that will also be willing to get on this slog and continue to inch our way towards value.
0: Susan, I really love the pictures you're painting for us and, and the overview that you've given to us. And I, I can't help but agree, You know, value-based care is so valuable for the nation. We have healthcare policy experts and economists agreeing The fee-for-service medicine is wasteful, it's outmoded, and at least partially responsible for the U.S. spending being far more than our peer nations on health care, but without outcomes that are better, and they're oftentimes worse. And ACLs have demonstrably saved money for the federal government and for taxpayers with positive impacts on the improvement of care overall, but it's taking so long to turn around this big fee-for-service battleship and entrenched interest and overcoming years of neglect and underfunding of upstream drivers of health. And CMS now has this goal to move everyone in the traditional Medicare program into an accountable, responsible relationship with our care providers by 2030. But for this to work, I think primary care needs to be at the heart of that value-based transformation. Greater investment in primary care has been shown to improve health and lower costs in examples of healthcare delivery throughout the world, and the if, and the evidence on it is irrefutable. This last year, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Med- and Medicine released a report recommending that we reform payment models, expand telehealth services, and support integrated team-based care to ensure access to high-quality primary care for all. Given that primary care is the only component of healthcare where we see increasing the investment and supply of healthcare providers actually results in better population health and more equitable outcomes. How do you think we can move away from the traditional fee-for-service-based primary care to more advanced primary care and eventually truly transformative primary care at scale? And what are the APG practice members doing in partnership with your organization to create a national standard for patient-centered coordinated and integrated primary care for patients that's accountable for cost and quality?
2: Well, one of the other signal lack of achievements of the U.S. healthcare system, I guess one would say, is the degree to which we have systematically undervalued primary care, particularly relative to other nations. When all of the literature of the last several decades shows that nations that invest heavily in primary care reap the benefits in terms of a healthier population and, frankly, lower expenditures in some of the areas that in the U.S. are most egregious, like heavy levels of hospital spending, which is not the same thing as saying is people don't need to be hospitalized. Of course they do, but we just have a, a large share of our expenditures in a very, very ex- expensive system tied up with, with hospitalization. Had we invested more as a country on primary care, I don't think we would be in the, exactly in the circumstances that we are in. And as we know, a fraction of every healthcare dollar is devoted to primary care in this country. And that is partly due to the fact that, again, it it ties back somewhat to the payment system. Not only do we pay on a fee-for-service basis, our payment structure was largely hijacked <laughs> by proceduralists and specialists a number of years ago and has tended to reward procedures and specialty care as over and against primary care. And we see that systematically, both in terms of the units of payment, the the levels of paid for units of care and primary care, overall compensation and salaries of primary care practitioners, et cetera. So what do we do? Public policy has attempted on a couple of occasions to address this issue. Some people besides me will recall that one of the features of the proposed uh, Clinton-era health care reforms under President Bill Clinton was that there was going to be a very substantial increase in primary care payment, and that it, this was to be proposed in law, which means to say, of course, that there would have been, had have have those initiatives been successful, up to a 50% increase in payment for primary care within Medicare. Now, mind you, this was back in the day where people really still were mostly talking about the fee-for-service system. So, you can imagine what would have happened if fee for service payment for primary care had bumped up to that degree. And if some other changes had been made, you know, things around who who we train in this country, uh, residency slots. Let's say that there had also been an active decision to build a, a broader primary care workforce to pull in more. Uh, and my nurse friends hate this phrase. Non-physician providers—the <laughs> only kinds of providers should be physicians, and everybody else is a non-physician. But if you think about, if that advanced practice nursing, and not to mention regular nursing, and even physician assistants, uh, it's just so clear that so much of the work of primary care can be done by others than physicians. Even if you have physicians captaining teams. You can build out those teams with many other types of healthcare professionals and non-professionals who can augment the capabilities that uh, primary care physicians deliver. And so had we done all of that, had we sent financial signals years ago that we really valued primary care, we would be in a different position. Okay, so we didn't do that. Public policy never stepped into, really, to grappling uh, in a very large way with this problem. So now what do we have? We've had a clear recognition over the last decade plus that we need to build up the primary care structure. We developed a a number of innovation models that were designed to do that. The patient-centered medical home, the notion of team-based care. Again, most of it has been voluntary. It's been difficult to get it done on a multi-payer basis. Even the experiments within the Medicare program, there have been a couple of attempts, as as you know, to, to make those multi-payer experiments, but they've gotten relatively small participation on the commercial payment side. So we've made a little bit of progress, but not a ton. And one of the more interesting things, I think, is that to practice sort of state of the art primary care versus the way much of primary care in this country has been structured. You think of the tools that are needed today to really provide first rate care. It's for example, being able to provide 24 seven access. You think about what happened in England where years ago, the National Health Service uh, decided that people needed round-the-clock access to primary care providers. Essentially, what was undertaken was a big bribe to primary care doctors within England to say, look, we'll dramatically raise your salaries, but you have got to provide 24-7 access. You have got to figure out a way that anybody can call you at any time and get access to primary care practitioners as distinct from having to do what we do here, which is tell people to call 911 or go to the hospital. The doctors took that bargain. And there's been 24-7 access to care within England for some years. We never did that as a country, but now we have to do that. So how are we doing it? We're still not telling anybody to do it. Medicare still doesn't tell primary care doctors, you must provide 24-7 access. So what has happened in, in the absence of that, the private sector is stepping in and saying, we've got to build up the kinds of systems that A, can provide 24-7 access, have electronic health record systems and other infrastructure that can provide that access, and not just by the way to the Medicare population and the Medicaid population, which frankly, that was where we targeted the dollars under the high-tech law for investments in ehrs we didn't send dollars to pediatric practices to build uh, ehr systems for example but so the whole system now has to be brought up to speed on the on the infrastructure on the access side and then to the degree that we have rediscovered the old truth that you have to do a lot not only in primary prevention to keep people from getting sick in the first place, but in secondary prevention, to keep people who are already sort of sick from getting really sick. And that means you have to intervene a lot. And I don't mean intervene by the virtue of doing a lot of procedures, but just you have to manage your population of patients with diabetes. You have to call them up, even though you haven't heard from them in a while and ask them, To come in for a blood sugar test. You have to keep registries. You have to do all kinds of things that the average small primary care practice in America just doesn't have the wherewithal to do. And that means investment. So what we're seeing now is those kinds of dollars coming in to essentially help to transition primary care from the sort of cottage industry that it has been for many many years into a full blown activity that is much better funded than it has been in the past and that in the in the context of value based payment arrangements particularly uh, endows practices and practice groups with the ability to take on risk because if you're going to take on risk which means You're know, you prepared to guarantee that you're going to provide care within a certain envelope. This is obviously in the case of full-blown capitation. You're going to accept a budget for caring for a group of patients, and you're going to bring that care expenditure in within that budget. And ideally, you're going to even do a little bit better than the projected budget and get some savings out of it. But you might not get the savings out of it, and you might not be able to bring care within the projected budget. So you might lose money. And if you lose money, you've got to have the wherewithal to make up the difference and stay in business. So you've got to be a little bit like an insurance company, if not a lot like an insurance company, in taking on risk. And not many physician practices in the country are really in a position to do that by themselves. What's the alternative? They either go and become employed by hospitals, and many have done that, and then they find out whether the hospitals are really serious about reducing hospitalization or not, or whether they're really buying physician practices so they can maximize referrals into the hospitals. If they try to stay independent, they can do that, but they still probably end up needing to look for partners of some sort that can help them stay independent, help them make these investments in infrastructure, and help them do the other things that they can do to really bring value for patients. I'll just give you one example. We have a member, Central Ohio Primary Care in Columbus, Ohio. They have partnered with the firm Agilon, uh, Agilon doesn't own the practice, but they have a partnership agreement. And because of some of the resources that Agilon has made available to them as a practice, they can do things that would be unheard of for most primary care practices. They have nurses and nurse practitioners stationed in most of the hospitals in Columbus, Ohio, so that if a patient of Central Ohio primary care shows up unexpectedly in the ED, immediately a nurse from Central Ohio Primary Care meets with that patient, undertakes an assessment to see whether the patient really needs to get, be in the ED or be hospitalized. And if they don't, they very quickly work to get the patient referred immediately for a primary care visit or to whatever uh, other elements of care are needed to prevent an unnecessary hospitalization. If the person does need to be hospitalized, there's a, a, a advanced practice nurse also paid for by Central Ohio Primary Care there at the hospital to shadow the hospitalist and make sure that the Central Ohio Primary Care patient is well taken care of, can be discharged as soon as is possible, has all kinds of aspects of post-hospitalization care already lined up so that a a readmission is avoided, et cetera, et cetera. These are things that are unheard of in the average small primary care practice, but it's part and parcel of, as I was saying earlier, this sort of full-throated capability of primary care to really step in and manage the care needs of patients in a way that we really haven't expected primary care to do. So all by way of saying what is happening now is this massive reinvestment in primary care that we probably should have been undertaking for many, many years. Thank goodness it's finally starting to happen in spades.
1: Well, Susan, that's well said. And, you know, I I share your optimism for this idealized future of transformative primary care. I mean, given the velocity of capital that's being deployed into the primary care landscape. And I was excited to hear you mention Central Ohio primary care. We actually have Dr. Wolf coming on the podcast in a few weeks. And there's just uh, so many exemplars out there, I think, in the landscape that You know, the evidence is irrefutable at this point that having interdisciplinary tech enabled relationship based primary care does great work and improving population health outcomes and lowering costs, improving quality. And, you know, and I, I also appreciated you bringing up the compensation piece. I mean, it's it's criminal that we we spend seven cents out of every dollar on primary care and a commercial PPO plan and only two cents out of every dollar on primary care in the entire Medicare program compared to specialist services. And it's just a, a stark imbalance that I think we do need to address. And, you know, I, I see a lot of what's happening in the value movement where there's there's now uh, a sense of hope that a lot of these primary care physicians by transitioning towards a more value-based approach to delivering care can actually have a more readily assured pathway to financial viability. And, you know, that is being conceptualized by a lot of what's going on uh, with CMMI and what they're doing with uh, advanced APMs. You know, I'm really interested in getting your perspective as one of the nation's most respected health policy leaders on maybe some of the specifics APG is addressing in your advocacy work in terms of strengthening alternative payment models. I mean, according to the most recent Medicare trustee report to Congress, the Medicare trust fund solvency is going to be depleted by 2026. I mean, it's right around the corner. And by encouraging more providers to enter into APMs, legislators could foreseeably avoid that fate. And APG supports the concept of MIPS value pathways to drive development of competencies for risk for success and risk based contracts, which can ultimately scale advanced APM adoption and I know your association has been very vocal. About seeing incentive payments continue for QPP participants that are a part of advanced APM models since this annual 5% bonus expires in 2022 and can be only can only be renewed with legislation and you know House Democrats last year introduced the value in Healthcare act in July of 2021 to extend the incentive program while also making some very important changes to the MSSP. And there's a lot of us in the value community. Many of our listeners out there are patiently waiting with fingers crossed on the passage of this legislation. So I wanted to ask you, Susan, if you could describe the legislative work that APG is doing to strengthen alternative payment models with continued assessment of pathways to success within APMs and the development of new models that will use capitation and new benchmarking methodology to to really bring value uh, forward for the future.
2: Right. Well, we would be the first to say we think that many roads can lead to value, but some roads will get you there faster than others. So let's take A Road to Value, which clearly were the the set of changes made in enactment of the macro legislation back in 2015, which really was designed to take the fee-for-service structure in in Medicare physician payment and link it more to to value, uh, to quality, and eventually to cost. And so that's where MIPS came in, the notion of advanced alternative payment models came in. But that was all taking the existing fee-for-service chassis and tightening up links to value. And that's good. I mean, that had to be done. We have no quarrel with that. And part part and parcel of that was this 5% bonus for physicians participating actively in advanced alternative payment models. And we think that bonus was appropriate. We think the bonus was a very useful incentive to pull more physicians into these models. And we think, we don't know for a fact, but we think many of them use those bonuses appropriately to augment what they can do for patients within their practices. So to the degree that there's suspicion that a lot of doctors went out and bought second homes or third homes with those bonuses, we think n- no. They really helped primary care practices stay in business and do what they need to do to, to provide care in the now the 21st century. So we're in favor of the extension of the bonuses, as you said. We don't necessarily think this is the only or the preferred way to get to value, frankly. Um, and we think there are two other very, very important avenues that are getting us to value a little bit more effectively. Keep in mind that a lot of those 5% bonuses now, if you go back to what I was saying earlier, at a time when many physicians are being employed by hospital systems, those physicians are probably paid on a salaried basis by hospital systems. They may have some bonus formulas that are related to volume on top of that, but primarily they're probably paid on a salary basis. The uh, bills for care of patients are submitted by hospitals to the Medicare program. And so who gets those bonuses? The hospitals get those bonuses. Now, that's okay. I'm sure the hospitals are putting some of those dollars to good use. But is that the whole arrangement that's going to get us to value fast enough when we know from the evidence that the ACOs that have been the most successful in reaping savings for the government and in sharing in those savings have been those that are led by physicians. And basically they've had a better set of results because they are reducing hospitalization more than the hospital led ACOs are. So that kind of tells us that whole construct is not the best way to get to value. What are the better ways to get to value? The roads that come closer to being highways and super highways than just dirt roads that got turned into paved roads. I think that our groups universally believe that the evidence exists that if, first of all, physician groups in particular or medical groups that are taking on risk and full risk have a better track record in achieving high quality care and cost effective care for patients. And we are assembling a lot of our own data now in the interest of demonstrating that. But we believe there is already a lot of evidence that if you're a physician practice, let's say even if you're in a relationship with a, say a Medicare Advantage insurance plan, If the risk for the care of the patients is fully delegated to you as an organization, as opposed to, say, a Medicare Advantage plan paying you as a physician group on a fee-for-service basis for care, the results are better. The savings are greater. The quality of care is higher, et cetera. There already is some evidence of this. If you look at some of the work done by the Integrated Healthcare Association in California, We can see that already that the fully delegated groups that have fully delegated risk are producing better results for patients and are essentially providing this true accountable care for patients because they are accountable. They're on the hook for both the costs and the quality of the care. So we think that's a more effective route. If you don't like Medicare Advantage, there are innovations within the, the traditional Medicare program. Let's take, for example, direct contracting and what is now called the ACO REACH program, which is, again, essentially capitation, organizations taking on risk for the care of patients, having to meet spending within predetermined benchmarks, or actually, of course, lower than the predetermined benchmarks, ideally, and also achieving quality parameters that have been set forth in these programs. We think the ACO REACH is still a relatively new program. It was, of course, direct contracting and now has been renamed ACO REACH. That's a new enough program that we're gonna have to wait and see uh, what the final evaluation results show. But our uh, member organizations who are in those models believe that they're already achieving very, very positive results. A, because they are being paid in this different way, they are accepting, they're taking on the risk of the care for patients, and B, because they are able to put in place, because they have the resources to do it, some of the kinds of interventions I was talking about earlier, some of the capabilities for patients, and more. You know, if you voluntarily align now as a Medicare beneficiary with an ACO REACH program, You do that because the ACO reach organization or provider groups affiliated with it have told you, not only can we look after your medical needs, we can also do things like if you're food insecure, we can line up food deliveries for you. We can pay for, and we will pay for your transportation to medical appointments and some of your other transportation needs as well. We can help you in ways that the conventional fee for service based system cannot help you and we recognize that if we do help you your health in these ways your health outcomes will be better so i think if we take those kinds of avenues of getting to value we see that they are going to produce faster and better results and i think that in the end as as i go as i say we want to see that 5% AAPM bonus continued, but it's not because we believe that's the be-all and end-all. We think these other routes to value are probably even more important, and certainly the experience of our groups would attest to that.
0: Susan, I really appreciate the, the delving into the ACL REACH program, and I want to talk a little bit more about that with you. We know it's a strong area of emphasis you know, in the industry and at APG. And it's so important that helping organizations prepare for the initiation of this new CMMI payment model. And and I want to bring up some work that you're doing with the ACO Reach Coalition, which is giving organizations who are participating in this new direct contracting model an opportunity to exchange information and share best practices. As defined by CMS, the purpose of the new ACO Reach model is to improve the quality of care for people with Medicare through better care coordination reaching and connecting healthcare providers and beneficiaries, including those beneficiaries who are underserved. And let's focus on this uh, underserved piece for a minute, because the focus on model participants to develop and implement a robust health equity plan that identifies underserved communities and implements initiatives to reduce disparities within their beneficiary populations, it's really a huge leap forward in the value movement. The government's initial focus with value-based care was on improving the quality of care. And now that the industry has become more comfortable with that, the focus is shifting to achieving health equity. And how is APG supporting its members as they find a way to provide the same level of care to all patients, regardless of socioeconomic and other factors? Do you think the equity tenets of ACO Reach will expand into other value-based programs as well?
2: Well, we certainly hope so. And from what we hear, uh, for example, even thinking in terms of programs outside the purview of the Innovation Center at CMS, I'm thinking about the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which, of course, was embedded into the ACA, and it's therefore a program under CMS as opposed to under the Innovation Center. But if you listen to what people say about, as they talk about the future of uh, me- Medicare sh- Shared Savings, the MSSP program they perceive uh, a desire for people to have primary care capitation within that program. So that even if you don't capitate the entirety of the program, you at least would capitate the primary care providers or at least the patients uh, cared for by primary care providers so that you would hand, now let's put this in English, right? Every pri- primary care providers would take responsibility for the care of a, of a group of patients. They would get a per member per month payments to care for those patients. They would provide the care within that envelope. And therefore they don't, they can use the money with, within reasonable limits as they best judge those expenditures should be made to care for those patients. So if they decide that they need to have primary care teams with uh, behavioral health experts on them or behavioral health specialists on them, or even just um, social workers or others to help deal with behavioral health needs. They've got the resources to spend the dollars that way to support the patients, as opposed to saying, wait a minute, this is not my department. I'm just here to provide primary care and Patients have got to go someplace else and somebody else has got to have responsibility for behavioral health. They have the capacity to provide these holistic, true holistic primary care for patients. And if people perceive that primary care capitation is a good idea for the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which many of them do, it's not in place yet, but they want it, then why would you not look back to the program that already has it, right? Which is ACO REACH, which provides the same opportunity for for primary care. And I think as we look at it, being able to adopt these strategies across the board in the Medicare program is extremely important. First of all, if you're truly going to get to the CMS goal of having everybody in the traditional uh, Medicare program in an accountable care relationship with providers by 2030. You're not going to get there through the current crop of ACOs. You're just not. You're going to have to get there through something that looks a whole lot, a whole lot more like either primary care capitation in MSSP or the direct contracting ACO reach type of a model. And we would go on to say, furthermore, and we did say this uh, in our recent response to the uh, Medicare Advantage request for information that CMS put out, which asked specifically what should be done in the Medicare Advantage plan. We said CMS should apply the same standard of getting everybody in the Medicare Advantage program in a, an accountable relationship with providers by 2030. And Medicare Advantage is a long way from that too. Some Medicare Advantage plans are you know, the five-star plans that are run by organizations that have been in capitation for a long time. They are most likely producing these accountable relationships with patients. Other plans in other parts of the country that are still paying providers on a fee-for-service basis, that are uh, changing their networks from year to year, that are essentially uh, competing against other plans so that plans may be trying to take business from each other by bidding down on premiums and so forth, causing people to move from one plan to another and potentially, therefore, move from one primary care provider to another. That's not accountable care, but that's part and parcel of the Medicare Advantage program because of the great heterogeneity of that program. That program is not the same nationwide. It's not even the same within particular states. So unless there's more emphasis on getting even of Medicare Advantage patients into these accountable relationships. We don't think that program will live up to expectations. And that's really important because as we know, about 45% of Medicare beneficiaries now are in Medicare Advantage plans. So there is a whole lot that has to continue to be done to push on this notion of true accountable care Uh, We do believe that accountable care means you've got a very strong relationship on the primary care level with people who are really looking out for your interests as a patient, who are coordinating your care, who are helping you even decide, for example, what Medicare Advantage plan you should be enrolled in. You know, those kinds of truly accountable relationships need to be fostered in every conceivable way we think again the best of our groups are in the best of those arrangements and we want to continue to share the learnings of our groups and and really promulgate the kinds of policies i've been talking about so that more of the americans have the benefit of those accountable care relationships and more of the healthcare system is providing them
1: well susan i couldn't agree more and i i appreciate you bringing up Medicare Advantage as an additional vehicle to drive a better value in our country uh, beyond the ACO reach program. I mean, I think together, you know, both can be pretty formidable and, you know, bringing us to where we need to be. I know APG is uh, doing a great amount of work right now and strengthening MA to be more optimal in terms of its uh, delivery of high value care. And I mean, providers and health plans who engage in high value risk-based MA contracts are across the country working diligently to improve. Improve overall quality in the MA program, and I think they should be rewarded for those efforts, and APG has spent a lot of time advocating for the expansion of MA programs that address social determinants of health. For example, APG recommended changes to risk adjustment and STARS quality performance measures within MA to include the assessment of social risk factors for MA beneficiaries to ensure that SDOH is better accounted for within the program. And since MA and its providers are the cornerstone of where our system has been trending in value for the past decade, are you confident that Congress, federal agencies, and other stakeholders will be able to work together to put in place incentives that drive the value evolution in MA just as they are working to do uh, so in the traditional Medicare program? I mean, how can we design incentives that offer both positive and negative reinforcement that will motivate these M.A. plans to push budget-based prospective payment downstream to the physician group level?
2: Well, what we suggested in our uh, response to the most recent uh, request for information from CMS about Medicare Advantage is that CMS could build into, for example, the star ratings a particular incentive structure that really did reward plans th- that did more to delegate risk down to providers that moved away from just pure fee-for-service payment for providers. Uh, and we think that, that that was just one suggestion we had. We, there probably are better ones that would essentially incentivize plans to form tighter relationships with provider groups where there is more shared risk and shared savings. I mean, the the whole incentives, everybody should be motivated by the same set of incentives around value. And that's not the case at the moment uh, for the most part around the country. It is often the case, but it is not guaranteed to be the case from one place to another. We have groups that work very closely with plans. They plan their strategy for being in the market Ma, they coordinate efforts to devise the benefit structure to meet the needs of the kinds of patients that they want to uh, draw into their their programs, both on the plan side as well as uh, with within the health system. So there are ways to incentivize these entities to work together to the same set of objectives, and if they do, we think we we think we can prove. The results are very, very powerful and better for patients in terms of the everyone marching to the same set of of incentives on getting to optimal care for the patient at the the most uh, reasonable cost. So we've said that back to CMS. We hope they take that ball and run with it and think of even more ways to push the program along. I would just point out uh, Zeke Emanuel of Penn and a number of colleagues had a a recently published article in uh, one of the JAMA publications where it looked as if they had taken a very long and hard look at both the Medicare Advantage program that the University of Pennsylvania Health System participates in or the plans that they participate in, as well as the ACO that the system participates in. And they came away with the conclusion that the Medicare Advantage plans, uh, the populations were seeing better results. And they hinted strongly that that's because in the ACO context, uh, with the hospital system essentially running the ACO, there isn't enough incentive to keep people out of hospitals that there is when it's in the hands of, of Medicare Advantage plans. And, and that yet the quality metrics were maintained. So it's not as if people who needed to be in the hospital were being kept out of the hospital. It's that avoidable hospitalizations were indeed being avoided. So as we look at those kinds of results, we can see that unless Medicare Advantage is really used as a tool, it already, we already believe it's been at the vanguard of the transition to value. It can do even better it can do even more. And CMS has a responsibility, we think, to push that just every bit as hard as they're gonna try to push on value in the traditional Medicare program. I mean, what a great achievement it would be if we had these two arms of the program that were all pushing as hard in the same direction around value. And the, so that people could have a choice If they do want to be in a Medicare Advantage plan, and goodness knows, particularly as the baby boom generation retires, you've got millions of people who've been in plans all their lives. They often can stay with the same providers as they move from, say, an employer plan into Medicare Advantage. They're comfortable with a plan arrangement. We ought to guarantee that they get high value out of the plan arrangement. By the same token, if people want to stay with traditional Medicare and in parts of the country where Medicare Advantage has not been as present, that's a reality for many people. They should be guaranteed the highest value, most accountable relationships going. So I don't think it's impossible for uh, this great country to achieve those goals. We just have got to step up the game uh, in both of those arenas, Medicare Advantage as well as traditional Medicare.
0: Susan, I'd like to shift gears just a little. Let's talk about the big news related to some of the the large M&A announcements of late. We've got CVS Health, they've reached a deal to acquire in-home healthcare company Signify Health for about $8 billion. And this acquisition would build on their growing healthcare services by leveraging Signify's capabilities in virtual and in-person visits and its use of technology and analytics to power its service. And the deal comes as competitors from Amazon to Walgreens are moving further into, into the value-based care arena. We've also heard about the recent Amazon announcement in July that it was acquiring One Medical, a membership-based chain of boutique doctors' offices for about $3.9 billion. In addition, Walgreens is building hundreds of doctor offices next to its drugstores through a partnership with Village MD, a primary care company that it acquired a majority stake in. I think we can agree the verdict is out as to whether these big corporate retail mega giants can meaningfully impact healthcare costs, in addition to transforming both quality and patient experience. But what is your take on the recent M&A activity? Will this investment of capital bring about a tipping point for primary care innovation and healthcare consumerism so that we can slay the bloated healthcare leviathan once and for all?
2: First of all, it's interesting to see how much attention these recent developments have been getting because this general movement has been underway for quite some time as we know. I'm reminded of the saying of uh, the science fiction writer, William Gibson, the future has already arrived, it's just not evenly distributed yet. And this future has been in the process of arrival for a number of years. You go back to several years ago when Amazon bought PillPack, right? And decided to enter the pharmacy business, which was a huge deal, which put CVS immediately on the defensive uh, because it could see Amazon already beginning to move directly into a, a, a broader set of activities in healthcare than anybody I think once thought. So this has been underway for a while. And frankly, look at some of the other activities that get much less press uh, but that are of equal magnitude. Look at what Walmart is doing in healthcare now, both in terms of f- first of all, look at how Walmart has been shaking up the healthcare market for many years. People forget now, but you know, back uh, more than more than 15 years ago, Walmart brought out the four-dollar copay generic prescription, right? why was it a $4 copay for a generics because everybody else was make as having a $5 copay right so if you could, if walmart could just beat it by a dollar it could pull in more business into its stores uh, in the in the pharmacy aspects of its stores so now look where walmart is it bought a telehealth company it is putting clinics into its stores catering specifically to the populations particularly many of those in underserved areas. I think Walmart has something like 4,000 stores in some of the most medically underserved areas of the country. They're gonna be able to bring primary care and behavioral health care to those areas. They're gonna do it with the uh, guarantee of, of quality and, and cost, low, r- relatively low cost and transparency around costs that uh, Walmart has been known for. And in particular, they are focused on the population that if it's insured uh, uh, has fairly large deductibles so that people may be on the hook for $1,000, $2,000, $10,000 of their healthcare expenditures before their insurance coverage kicks in. And so being able to offer reasonably priced primary care services in Walmart in-store clinics is going to be very attractive I dare say Walmart is probably investing as much or more than Amazons is going to spend to buy one medical one medical is a you know is is a really Wonderful organization. Uh, They own Iora Health, which is a member of ours. We're very proud of the work that Iora has done and One Medical will do. But, you know, they've got what, I think, 800,000 patients or something. It's about the size of the population of Seattle. So it's important it's interesting that this acquisition has been made. And clearly, in because simultaneously Amazon is closing up Amazon Care, which was a really interesting and exciting model, but one that obviously didn't get the traction that Amazon was hoping for as they tried to Interest the employer purchaser market in basically buying these capabilities on behalf of of employees. Amazon has decided. You know, it's harder it's harder to make a big wave in healthcare than you would have thought, and you can't. You're you're going to have to do it off of uh, something that even has as uh, big or in this case small a presence nationally as one medical does. You're going to have to start to build out. Uh, based on some existing beachhead that has at least some identity in the marketplace that is not Amazon, so I think these are interesting models. When I've asked uh, groups of physicians about what they think uh, the the whole impact will be of this, you know, do they believe that Amazon is going to take over the world of healthcare? No. Do they believe that Amazon is going to do things in healthcare that will force others to? emulate it and adapt to it? Yes, because that's the effect that Amazon has had on retail and on much of the rest of uh, what what it has done. So I think we're going to see more and more pressure on other providers in the healthcare system to provide 24-7 access, really great telehealth, home visits, uh, medication delivery by drone, (laughs) you know, all kinds of things that the tech companies are able to bring to the market that I don't think are going to enable the tech companies to take over healthcare, but they're going to force others, uh, the legacy players in healthcare to adapt.
1: Well, Susan, I'd love to explore further this tech-based innovation and how that's going to lead us to a a promising future in value-based care. And I thought as we wrap up our conversation today, We could talk about this reimagined healthcare system that actually anticipates individual needs and works to keep them healthy and delivers as much care as possible to them in their homes and workplaces and communities and in, in fully unleashes the potentiality of technology and predictive analytics. And you wrote about this in your book several years ago, "Healthcare Without Walls," a roadmap for reinventing U.S. healthcare. And it's been a few years now, but I'm curious as to whether or not you're still confident that we will eventually embrace the vision of a more distributed healthcare system extending outside of traditional institutional settings. Is healthcare without walls the future of value-based care delivery? And with this progression to tech enabled asset light care models supported by massively powerful primary care telehealth and remote patient monitoring what will be the anticipated impacts on the healthcare workforce
2: big big questions but let's take the the first part of that which is is the future arriving or has it arrived in terms of uh, the movement of care outside of conventional institutional settings clearly yes. And what we said in that report, that book at the time was, you know, there, there are all kinds of aspects of healthcare that are going to remain in institutional settings, hospitals in particular, rehab places, et cetera. There's a lot of care that requires the laying on of hands, that requires people to be in the same place. Uh, if I get into a horrible traffic accident I'm going to expect to be taken to a major trauma center. I will not expect a telehealth visit with a trauma surgeon right from my car. We know this. But there's a whole lot of the rest of healthcare that is about exchanges of information. And just as we have moved in almost every other aspect of our lives to exchanging information remotely and virtually, We can, and we are doing that in healthcare. And so if you just take the technologies that are already extant and on the market, right? We've got telehealth and telemedicine. We've got uh, sophisticated software, including software with a medical purpose, so-called SAMD. We've got data and information exchange. Uh, We've got clinical decision support systems. We have cognitive computing, machine learning, uh, remote monitoring equipment, uh, internet-enabled health devices, mobile medical apps, wellness products, and now we throw in forms of information gathering, self-administered lab tests, home COVID tests, all of these things that enable more remote, more distributed care. Um, and then we've got things like hospital at home or as it is sometimes called, advanced care at home. The realization that we can take a lot of these technological innovations, put them together with the right personnel and the right other supplies and equipment, and actually take versions of hospitals into patients' homes and do that more cost-effectively and also, frankly, produce better results for those patients. And that's proven than having them in conventional hospitals for a very large range of conditions that go beyond even the relatively lower acute uh, conditions that are normally hospitalized, like pneumonias. And you have organizations like Kaiser Permanente and Mayo and others now really pioneering in this notion of advanced care at home for patients who historically have been hospitalized as opposed to now hospitalized or provided this level of acute care at home. So it's happening. And I think as some have observed, it's almost a, a bit like the analogy to, to say Airbnb. What did Airbnb do? Recognize that there's a lot of underutilized capacity in pay, in people's homes for other people to stay. And so airbnb came up along and kind of enabled that capacity to be opened up and used in new ways there's a lot of unused capacity if you will in patients homes to care for people at home and if you can bring the right set of personnel into home you can create the t- technical ability to have meaningful real-time exchanges Uh, with sophisticated personnel in other locations who can be, in effect, monitoring the patient. You can bring in food. You can bring in all kinds of other things. And you can take that unused capacity in a patient's home and put that to use in the care of the patient. Again, as I said earlier, we know from a lot of studies that the results are better, both in terms of the actual outcomes of patients, in terms of mortality, lower readmissions, Into care, and then uh, of course, in terms of cost savings as well. So, this is happening, it will be a bigger and bigger part of our healthcare future. I'm utterly confident.
1: Well, I couldn't agree more, Susan. I think it's a great way to end our conversation today. I, I can't thank you enough for joining us this week on the podcast, but most importantly, thank you for your leadership in our country and at APG and supporting leading physician practices in this journey to value-based care. It's uh, such important work that you're doing there at APG and we, we really appreciate it.
2: Well, and thanks to both of you for bringing these really important discussions uh, to bear and, and essentially uh, giving us all a, an ability to exchange our views and frankly, You know, hold us accountable, because as we know, things don't always turn out the way uh, even those of us who care a lot about these uh, types of innovations uh, foresee. So thank you for, as I said earlier, bringing these conversations to light. And thanks for all of the good that you do in, in doing precisely that.
1: Our pleasure. Thanks so much, Susan. Appreciate your time, Susan. It was great chatting with you.
2: Thanks, thanks. Great questions. Thanks to both of you.